You guys be seated. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 52 through 59, which Wendell read earlier. The title of the message is, You Are What You Eat. It's a famous saying, I guess, in the fitness world also, isn't it? And probably something we don't like to think about the day or the week after Christmas, right? You are what you eat. I mean, the bottom line is, Christmas Day, uh, there were so many good things to eat at my mother-in-law's house. And they were, you know, everything from cheese balls to nuts to dessert, caramel cake and pecan pie and a uh, little chocolate she had made and uh, peppermint chocolates and all kinds of things. And, uh, and you know, I, I consume that stuff. I don't know about you, but, you know, on a day like that, I just, all, all rules go out the window. I'm not worried about uh, the workout I'm going to have to suffer through when I get back into the workout routine. I'm not worried about uh, how much I won't be able to eat in the coming weeks. I'm just thinking about the moment. I am eating all I can get in my stomach at that time. And, you know, then we go a few days there, and, and Amy, we're one night, uh, I'm, uh, she's my conscience in a sense, because I don't have a conscience when it comes to caramel cake or pecan pie, or banana pudding, or just sweets in general. You anybody else like that? That's, that's where I, you know, that, that's an area where I just really struggle. And so, I don't know, maybe like a Thursday night or something, we're at her mom's house and everything's kind of winding down. Her mom fixed some coffee. And you know, pecan pie just goes with coffee. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so I got my cup of coffee and my piece of pecan pie, and Amy says to me very nicely, I thought you were just going to eat like that on Christmas Day. Well, it was Christmas week. You know, hey, it's the same thing. And so, uh, you know, even after her uh, saying that, my grandmother uh, had, uh, we had a Christmas with 30 relatives in to her home on Friday. And, uh, of course, she had her world-famous dressing and all this food again. Except this time, I didn't eat the dessert. And on the way home, Amy had made recognition of that. And she said, so you didn't eat any dessert tonight? And I said, no. And she said, well, why not? You know, and I said, well, I just didn't want any. And she said, you're, you're thinking about tomorrow at the gym, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, to be honest with you, I am. Because the bottom line is you are what you eat, aren't you? I mean, if you eat a bunch of junk and you consume it on a regular basis, your body becomes junk. It's just the way it is. And you can, you, can, you can try to work out, but the bottom line is if you, you can go work out really humanly all you possibly can. But if you're going to eat pecan pie and caramel cake and all these things, this junk food as it's known in our world, potato chips, all these things, fast food, if that's what you're going to eat, it doesn't, you can't train your body well enough to consume that kind of food on a regular basis, right? That's the problem in our culture. We're becoming what we're eating, right? Less people are eating healthy. More people are eating fast food and, and the like. And our, our waistlines are showing it in America. We are now the most overweight country in the world. By far, it's not even close because we are what we eat. We'll pass up good food to eat bad food on a regular basis, not on a one-day exception. If we just ate that bad food in one week or one day, we could survive that. The problem is we eat it daily, don't we? I do and you do. And physically, we have become what we're eating in some very astonishing ways. You know, you read the latest research now. 
Cancer specialists are beginning to say that, you know, people who are overweight have a higher risk of cancer, certain types of cancer especially, because what they're finding is is that, that it triggers something. They're still not able to explain it all, but that this, this buildup uh, causes certain cancers. Uh, Alzheimer's. Now, I've become very interested in Alzheimer's. My mom has it. You know, they're finding that people that eat high-fat content food have Alzheimer's on a higher proportion. It's amazing. That builds up in the brain, and it clogs what God has made to work right. It then becomes clogged, and you become what you eat. If you eat a lot uh, of these unhealthy things, your body rebels, and it goes into uh, a sometimes very horrific rebellion because what we eat matters. And some, for some reason, we have forgotten that physically, and not only physically, but we've forgotten it spiritually. We are what we eat. If I went around and we had a blind survey, everyone in this room I would be willing to venture would say they want to be spiritually strong and growing and vibrant, and they want to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. The problem is we are what we eat. Do you see where I'm headed? We spend more time consuming the things of this world and wonder why we're not more like Christ. I'm talking about myself. I'm not just talking at you. I'm talking with you about a real phenomenon that's occurring. Not just physically, that's bad enough. But to be spiritually unhealthy is eternally weighty. Think about it. When we spend, is it, any, is, it any, is it any doubt that our minds are turning to mush when we spend hours in front of a TV set and hours in front of a computer screen looking at useless information? Again, you know, often my wife will rein me in in their areas. I'm a very passionate person and I tend to get overly consumed with things. And she noticed a, a uh, she's more methodical in her personality makeup, these kind of things, very... Uh, methodical, and not so easily consumed. And I can be consumed by good and bad. You know, I can just get off track. And I don't know if you find yourself that way, but I can do that. I'm being very open with you this morning. Some some weeks back now, I guess three or four weeks ago, she noticed that I, I, in my free time, was prone to go to the computer and read, uh, you know, newspaper articles and all these kind of things about uh, sports. She was just noticing it become more and more frequent. If I, if I was busy, it's fine. But if I just had free time, I was just around, nothing to do. That's what I gravitated towards. And so again, she reminded me, you know, couldn't you be doing something better? And I don't like to hear those kind of things. Do you like for somebody to remind you of that kind of stuff? It's like eating the pecan pie. You really don't want somebody to tell you not to eat the pecan pie when you've got the fork in hand going to the mouth. You know, it's, it offends because they're right, really, aren't they? And it offends us. But she was right because I was I could have been much more productive with those minutes and that were turning into 30 and 45 minutes and in and of wasteful time eating and devouring things that really don't have any spiritual impact on me. They weren't negatively impacting me in a in a in a hands on way, but they were secondarily causing me to have negative impact spiritually. In other words, they weren't sinful in and of themselves. But because I was spending time at it, it was time I could have spent better in another place. Growing in my relationship with Christ. 
spending more time with my children, these kind of things. And so we are what we physically, we are what we eat spiritually, and so it's no doubt why our nation struggles from a spiritual vacuum. Christianity struggles from a spiritual vacuum. People are not eating and feeding on the Word of God. You know, most Christians admit they have never read through the Bible. Ever. Not, only, not just that they haven't read in a systematic way, but most Christians admit in blind surveys that they've never read particular books of the Bible ever in their life. Think about that. We are what we eat, is what I'm trying to say. In a very real way. For us to say we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to not have taken the time in a lifetime to have read His Word. Most other religions and groups would think that's ridiculous. If you brought an Islamic student in, 14 years old, sat him down and said, here's a 14-year-old Christian. They've never read their Bible completely. That Islamic would be offended, would be shocked, would be horrified. You call yourself a Christian and yet you don't even read what you believe to be God's written word to you? Because see, by then they've read through the Quran several times. Several times. And they'll read through it hundreds of times in their lifetime. You say, well, the Bible's a big book, preacher. I don't know that anybody's expected to get all the way through it. It's really not that big. When you sit down and think about it, in your lifetime, you'll read, in, in this generation, my daughter and my son will read more internet material than, than the Bible contains. And very little of it will have any spiritual significance to it. A, a good-sized novel. If you read three novels in a, in a year, a good-sized novel, two, 250 pages, you've read most of the Bible. See, it's what we want, what we desire, what we're disciplined towards. It's what we eat, and we become those things. And it's a mark against us. And Jesus is making a reference here at the end of this sermon that began just after multiplying the bread and the fish, began with the statement, I am the bread of life. He now, at the end of the sermon, is wrapping up with a very offensive statement to the Jewish people. Look what he says in verse 52 through 55. I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus ends this message much the way He began it. I am the bread of life. 
And at the end, he says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The point of the whole message has been that Jesus Christ is what sustains the soul of mankind. If you call yourself a Christian this morning and you're here, I want you to know that the only way that's true of you is if you have actually fed on Christ. You cannot be a Christian by association. You cannot be a Christian by heritage. You cannot be a Christian by coming to a building and listening to a preacher. You cannot be a Christian by doing good works. You cannot be a Christian by memorizing a few verses. You cannot be a Christian by saying a simple childlike prayer. You are only a Christian if you have fed on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's offensive to the Jews, and I believe it's probably offensive to some of you. I know it's offensive to a lot, large portion of the Christian world today to say that. It was offensive to the Jews. Look in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves. The word disputed there that you have in your text, it's really to argue, to wrangle, to disagree strongly, even to the point of blows. So there was an argument ensuing Around Christ and who, what he was saying here in this message, I am the bread of life. This, this became a great argument. And then the Jews said, not in a complimentary way, but in a, a disparaging, disbelieving way, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see, the Jews were looking at his physical body and they were saying, he's asking us to do what the law forbids. Eat meat that has blood in it. The law had forbid that. In, in Leviticus chapter 9, the blood was to be drained from the sacrifice, the meat to be presented to God, and the blood to be given wholly to God. See, the priest would eat his portion of the meat. It would be consumed, and then the rest would be given as a wave offering to God. But the blood, all of the blood went to God. It's not that the blood symbolized life. Blood in their culture symbolized sacrifice. Sacrifice, and we use it as a symbol of sacrifice in our culture. I've poured my blood, sweat, and tears into this project, whatever it might be. A new house, my family, my job, a sport. I've poured my blood and sweat and tears. What do we mean? We've actually bled? No, we mean we've sacrificed. So here, don't misunderstand what the Jews are upset about. It's not that they believed life, necessarily believed that life was contained in the blood, though There may have been some of that in their culture. Really, what they're offended about and what's going to really offend them in this last section is that Jesus would dare to say, dare to eat what is only for God, the blood. The blood was intended for God's consumption, not man's. So Jesus sees their offense. How can this man offer us his flesh to eat? He sees their offense and he doesn't back away from the dispute. He increases the dispute. Oh, it bothers you that I would say my flesh is is bread for you? How about my flesh and drink my blood? Then you can have the life which I offer. See, far from running from the confrontation that surrounded his life, Jesus met it head on. He made it met it face first. And confrontation surrounded this teaching of eating his flesh. Christ must be fully ingested by faith. If you call yourself a Christian this morning, or if you wish to call yourself a Christian after this morning, or during this message, I want to tell you, Christ must be ingested. He must be taken in 
fully by faith. You say, where do you get the idea of faith? Because Jesus doesn't mention faith in our text. I want to show you, eating and drinking are equal to faith. When Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, what he's saying is, you must have faith in me. You must believe me. I want to show you how that's true by the structure of John's writing here in Jesus' message. Look back at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay? And then verse 38, For I have come down from the Father not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So what are they to do? All that the Father gives to me will come, and whoever comes. So the first thing John says is you must come. You see that? All that the Father gives me will come. And whoever comes, you must come to Christ. That's verse 37 in in the beginning of the text. Look in verse 40 with me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The second thing John says is, about faith is you must look at Christ. You must believe in Christ. He records Christ's words very clearly. Come to Christ. Look at Christ. Believe in Christ. And then, look in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Come to Christ. Look on Christ. Believe in Christ. Feed on Christ. Drink His blood. These are all structured the same way. They're descriptions of what it means to have faith is really what they are. Eating and drinking is equivalent to saying you have to believe. You have to have faith. Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus' further description of what it means to eat and drink His flesh and His blood. And I'm saying it's faith. Faith is what He's getting at. Faith is an active participation in Christ. That's a definition. I wrote it down. You might like it or not like it. I think it's adequate. For our text, Jesus is saying, faith. If you say you believe in Jesus this morning, you're listening to this message, that means you are actively participating in the life of Christ today. If you can't say that, there's no assurance of your faith. That's why Paul continually tells believers, wrestle with your salvation. Know that you're standing. Stand firm, lest you fall. It's continually an imperative command from Paul to know that you're in the faith. It's concerning to Paul that people would say, I believe in Jesus, and yet the very passive nature in which they live this life as it concerns Christ would tell him, you're not in Christ. And he can't make the call. Paul can't make the call for you, and I can't say you're not in Christ because I can't see your heart. What I'm saying is if the pattern of your life is passive, it's not ingesting Christ by faith, then I would say you got serious concerns as to whether you are truly a believer or not, whether you're truly redeemed or not, whether you're truly born again or not. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, the old man is gone and the new has now come. 
Galatians 2.20, Paul says, For I now, the life I live is in Christ. I am crucified with Christ, yet now I live in Christ. See, his very life was active in Christ. It was not a passive life that Paul lived. It was not a passive life that, that Jesus was calling these Jews to live. It was an active participation in Christ. Actively participation. Participate in Christ. All of these words, come, look, believe, feed, drink, they're all active. They're all active. Jesus isn't saying just know something. Jesus isn't just saying confess with your mouth something. Jesus is going further. He's saying you must come to me. You must look at me. You must believe in me. You must eat my flesh. You must drink my blood. You can't sit in the pew and claim my name and not be fully committed and, and, and fully dedicated and planted in me. You can't do that. Because the only way we are sure of our faith is if it is, if, if it is in Christ and if that faith has been fully ingested. Faith is not the mere acknowledgement of facts. It is the eating of Christ. It is the consuming of Christ. Now, why would Jesus pick food as an analogy for Himself, bread? Well, one reason is because we are what we eat. I know I've said that a lot, but I want you to go home thinking that in your mind as the days pass. What Jesus seems to be saying is, at, the ver- at a very basic level, you are what you have taken in in your spiritual mind and heart and soul. If you've never taken me in, then you're not a new being. You have no eternal life. You may be a morally good person, but without first feeding on me and finally feeding and drinking me, you have no eternal life. Faith is active. Faith is ingesting Christ. Faith unites us to the true food of Christ. Look at verse 56. He says in this text, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You become what you eat. Jesus says, if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you become me. And we'll show you that in the first epistle that John writes. He goes further. It bothered me. It should bother you when we get there that he would make such a bold statement about who we should be if we claim Christ. But this is, this is so important. This concept is so important. The whole chapter has really, the major emphasis has been this point. That you can, you can, you can do all the other things in the world. You can be a good person. You can, you can obey the religious code. You can do all these things. But unless it starts with me and it ends with me, it's nothing. It offers you no hope. It offers you no life. That's why in Colossians 1, Paul said, Christ is the hope of glory. Christ is the hope of glory. The hope of glory is not simply going through the routine of a religion or saying that I believe or praying a prayer or joining a church. That's not the hope of glory. The hope of glory is ingesting, in being, in Christ, abiding in Christ. That's the hope of glory. Is being in Him, covered by Him, surrounded by Him, filled with Him. That's the hope 
of glory. It's not faith in general. It's faith in Christ that's being emphasized by Jesus. It's not enough just to believe something. You must believe in Christ. Whoever feeds on my flesh and whoever drinks my blood has eternal life. You see, it's, it's an exclusive faith that we're being called to. Not an inclusive faith. Not a general belief. A specific belief in the only one who can save us, Jesus Christ. And let's get to this matter as addressed in verse 55, the true food and the true drink. What does he mean by true? Well, what he means is this is the real nourishment of your soul. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. True, real, sustaining, meaty. In other words, junk food, spiritually, will not sustain life for eternity. Only my flesh will sustain life. It's over these verses that so many in the world have stumbled, believing this passage is about the Lord's Supper. And I addressed that in the last message we had in John 6. I want to quickly address it again. There's great reason. Even more this week has become evident to me why this is not about the Lord's Supper. First of all, the Lord's Supper is not instituted at this time. That just struck me as an odd point. You know, If he's talking about the Lord's Supper, they have no clue. They don't know what he's talking about. They've never taken the Lord's Supper. That's John 13. And then again, if you look here, what he would actually be saying if he's talking about the Lord's Supper is that that's what saves you. Taking the Lord's Supper is what saves you. That's what he was saying. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. And so if this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, to communion, to the sacrament, so to speak, then that's what saves. The Catholics got it right. We got it wrong. We all ought to be taking Mass this morning. Because that's the only way we'll be saved. See, this isn't some... Uh, and it's not just a mere symbol that he's talking about here. Don't, don't, don't relegate this down to some mere wordplay. No. He's saying literally. Literally. Eating his flesh is the way you live. The question is, how do you do that? That's what, that, that's what the Jews ask. And that's what we all may be asking is, how do you do that? If it's not in the Lord's Supper, then how? What, how do these verses make sense? How can we wrap our minds around them? The Reformed tradition has always said that salvation is granted by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's really, this, this is really a, a statement in, those, in that line. If you look at it, verses 54 through 56 particularly, whoever feeds on my flesh... Christ's flesh. Whoever drinks Christ's blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So this feeding and drinking is a representation of faith. And so faith in Christ is what saves and grants eternal life. And will bring the resurrection at the end of this life. Christ must be ingested by faith. Second thing, and finally, we would say, faith in Christ brings the fulfillment of at least three promises according to this passage. Three things are promised to us for believing in Christ. Okay? I want to go through them quickly with you as if-then statements. All right? 
Look at verse 53. The negative statement. Unless you eat. Unless you eat. In other words, he's saying, those who don't eat of my flesh and drink my blood will not have eternal life. You will not. That's the negative, okay? So that's not a promise. That's a statement of fact. Outside of Christ, there is no eternal life. Now, what is promised to those who have faith in Christ? That's where I want to end the message. If you have faith in Christ, then you have eternal life. You have it already in your possession now. Not in the future. Not when you die. Not hopefully one day. Now you have eternal life. Now you have what Jesus in John 10 calls the abundant life. You have it now. Not in the future. Christians live as if we're waiting on the promise. We've received the promise in Christ. When we ingest Him by faith, we begin to live at that moment in eternity. Life is eternity. This life is eternity for us. Not the life that is to come. That's why Jesus is able to say, He who believes in me, yet though he dies, he shall live. Because you can't die. Physically, your tent may fall to the ground. That's the gateway into the fulfillment of your life, eternal life. Where you will express that in the truest sense of form, in the presence of God, physically. But even before death, we're experiencing that life. He is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live forever, he says. And so he's saying here, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The first promise granted to us for belief in Christ is eternal life. Eternal life. It's guaranteed. It's not a proposition that might be fulfilled. It's not, I hope I will live forever. It's a guarantee based on his flesh and his blood. Eternal life. That should encourage your soul. We're not groping around as those who have no hope, but we have Christ, the hope of glory. Because we believe in Him, we have eternal life. There's parallel structure in verse uh, here in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, look, hold, hold your place there and look at verse 40. Look what he says. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Do you see the parallelism in these verses? That's why I can confidently say what he's meaning when he says feed and drink is faith. That's what he means. Because in his own message he says, He who looks at me and believes in me has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Same concepts being taught. It's being reiterated for us. It's being exemplified for us. It's being made clear to us, but it's the same doctrine. Faith in Christ alone brings eternal life. And that eternal life is guaranteed by his flesh and his blood that it will never end. If you believe in me, you will never die, Jesus says. What a promise we have in Christ that's been fulfilled. Secondly, if you have faith in Christ, then you will be raised up on the last day. Four times in this passage, he says you'll be raised up in the last day. Look with me at verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 
If you look in verse 44, he says again, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in verse 54, he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The emphasis of the last day, raising him up on the last day, is it's over and over, isn't it? If I, just like I've said, you are what you eat, and you're going to remember that, I promise you. Weeks from now, if somebody says, I missed December the 30th message, what was it about? You are what you eat. That's what you're going to remember. See, Jesus wanted them to remember one thing out of this message. I am the one who grants you life, eternal life, and I will raise you up in the last day. That's what he wanted them to remember from the message. He repeated it over and over again. And why would he do that? Why would he repeat it? Because in a large part, the resurrection is what salvation is all about. Let me read for you a passage by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to Paul's words. Now, Verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Jesus is saying the same thing Paul said. Jesus is saying, if I don't raise you up on the last day, if you believe in me, you eat my flesh, you drink my blood, you look on me, you come to me, and at the last day I don't raise you up, then it was all for nothing. Paul would say, we're the most to be pitied among men. If Christianity is a farce, if it's a lie, then we're to be pitied more than any other group of people in all the world because we've foolishly bought into something that's not true. Do you see that? Christianity is not held out as a better life in the Bible. Christianity is held out as the only life. And if it's not the only life, if there's another way, then we're doing what we're doing in vain. My whole life is wasted. Not just what I teach my children and my wife. Not just what I tell those on the street corner. But my whole profession is a waste if there's no resurrection. The resurrection, in a sense, is the center of of salvation. It's the center of Christianity. Resurrection. And then he continues, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most To be pitied. You see the finality that the resurrection offers for the Christian. The assurance that it offers. If you believe in Christ, you will have eternal life. And if you believe in Christ, He will raise you up from the dead. Why can I say that so confidently? Because He was raised from the dead. And He is the first proof of that resurrection which is to come. He was the first resurrection. We will be the second resurrection. Be pulled up again, raised to life. And if it's not true, then what are we doing? Why are you here? Why would you read your Bible? Why would you listen to preaching? Why would you pray? If it's not true, live life for today. For tomorrow we're gone and we perish. Look, this world offers a lot of attractive things. Don't ever lie to yourself. 
Sin's attractive. And if you're living without sin because you are in Christ and you're hoping for the next life, your fulfillment is in Him and in the eternal life that He offers, and you're not living it up in this day and time, and then that turns out to be a lie which you've believed in all of your life, that's why Paul says you're most to be pitied. It's not that sin isn't fun for a season. You see, and if this is the only season we've got, why aren't we living in sin? In just utter debauchery and sin. Why not? Why not? It's a wasted life. If there's no eternal life and we're not going to live for the flesh today, then it's all a waste. What are we even doing? No wonder great and intelligent men who didn't confess Christ went mad. They went crazy, most of them. You see, the Christian life is about the resurrection. And if it's not true, then we're wasting our time. And there's no hope. So we have two promises which are fulfilled in Christ. The third and final promise that offered to us in this passage is that if you have faith in Christ... He will be your daily supply of God's life. This one is crucial. This makes all the difference because everything I've said to this point, everybody kind of agrees with and we're excited about that. Look what he says in 56 and 57. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's the first time the abide passage has begun. That's going to be a theme in the last half of the book. Jesus' teaching in the final discourse is going to be all about abiding in him. Okay, but that, it's not been mentioned up to this point. Now Jesus launches into the, you got to abide in me and I in you. And there's this interchange of who, who, who is a Christian? You know, you might ask, what is a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? Do I look like a Christian? It's a question, isn't it? It's a great question. 56 and 57 offer an answer. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will live because of me. You will live because of me. Christ is the supply of eternal life continually. The verb here is in the aorist as it has been all the way through the passage. And that means that it was a point in time in the past when an action occurred and it still has effects today. It's not happening over and over again. That would be present tense. Aorist tense says it happened in the past, but it impacts me now, even today. And so salvation is always that way. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. That one act in the past has an impact on us today and it will in the future. And even more than that, you think back with me, the cross is the central event that has an impact on today because Christ died for my sins. Now I'm saved from my sins and I eternally will be a new creature without sin. All because of one act that happened a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, and it's still having an impact on us. An action that occurred in the past that now impacts us. And so he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live. Why will you live? Because God who sent me, the living God sent me. I am alive. You see what he said? And I'll make you alive. Do you see that? What does he really mean by that? 
I think there's some clues for us throughout Paul's writings, but I want to stay with John because John, it's best to find the context of a teaching in the, in the writer's context. So turn to 1 John. This is where we're going to end today. I'm going to send you out with this thought. It's kind of a strange idea, this you're going to live because I live thought. 1 John 5, verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him. You see that? In Him. Abide in Him. It's the same idea. Who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. So we're not in God the Father. We're in Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You see that? We're in Jesus. Jesus is in God. Therefore, because God is living, Christ is living, and we are living. You work backwards. He is the source of our life. Now, that statement alone is really not that appalling or shocking, but I want you to turn back to 1 John 3, verse 9, because this idea is carried to an extent here that we don't often think about. What does it mean to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you might ask Jesus. What does that mean? How do I do it? Well, look at verse 9 in chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? It means you have the seed of God in you. That's what it means. Therefore, habitual lifestyle sins are impossible for you now. If you can live in sin, you are not in God. You've never been born of God. That's not a statement of judgment. It's a statement of fact. If you don't find that you've progressed from a life of sin to a life set apart to God, you're not a Christian. Because that's what it means to believe. New life. Is this the only place that we see the seed spoken of? No. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if you're in Christ, you are a new creature. Old is gone and new has come. Same idea. Romans 8. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 15 through 17, that we've been given the spirit, not of fear, but of adoption, whereby we call God our Father, Abba, our Father. And now we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs to the kingdom. We've been changed. What does it mean to eat his flesh, drink his blood? It means you've been changed. So you may have walked an aisle at some point in your life and you may have said some simplistic prayer, three or four lines, and you may have signed a card and you may have been dunked in some water. And yet what I'm telling you this morning is if he doesn't abide in you, if his seed is not in you, 
if the Spirit is not active in you, if you're not able to call Him Abba, Daddy, Father, if you don't view yourself as an heir or son, if, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, if you haven't been crucified with Christ, it's not I that live, yet Christ lives now in me. If that's not the statement of your life, you have no reason to be confident of your salvation. We're a generation that's consumed with being confident about our salvation. We need to be less worried about confidence of salvation and more concerned with abiding, eating, drinking Christ. That's what we need to be consumed with. Because the promise in this passage is that if you do that, then you will be saved, you will have eternal life, you will be raised from the dead, and Christ will live in you daily. Our focus is wrong, isn't it? In this whole message, he hasn't said anything about be sure that you're a Christian. He hasn't said anything about that. He hasn't said have assurance. Assurance is never promised, by the way, in the Scripture. Assurance is never promised. The only thing that's promised is that if you abide in Christ, He is in you and you will have eternal life. So wrestle with that fact. Wrestle with it. Some of the greatest saints to ever live have wrestled their entire lives with that fact. See, we're looking for contentment and we're looking for settled and we're looking for... Isn't it just like God to never give you that? To make you always search and seek and think and contemplate Him whether you're in Him or not? That's, that's more like God, isn't it? Than to give us comfort and ease because what are we going to do when we get comfortable and ease? Sit back, I've arrived. I have nothing else to do. Why go? Why do anything? That's not what he's seeking. He's looking for people who'll feed on him. I hope that you have fed on him. And if you haven't, then you must do what he says. Come to him, look at him, believe in him, eat his flesh, drink his blood, ingest him fully. Let's pray. Father. We are consumed with the wrong things, looking for tokens of assurance.